0: I want to begin by making this statement. God intends for us to live exciting lives. He really does. There's a scripture verse in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 14 in the Living Bible that's very interesting. It says, the backslider gets bored with himself, but the godly person's life is exciting, God intends for us to live exciting lives. Now, if we were to ask the world, what does an exciting life look like? The world would say to us, hey, an exciting life is partying and, and going out to the clubs and, and doing things like that. An exciting, ga- an exciting life is, is, is gambling on football games or baseball games. That's exciting. If you put some money on the game, it makes it more exciting. An exciting life is traveling and meeting famous people. Uh, an exciting life is buying expensive things. Well, That's how the world would describe an exciting life. First of all, some of those things that I mentioned are sinful, and we shouldn't do them at all. But some of the things that I mentioned are are not sinful. But what I've learned is this. Those things only provide temporary excitement in life. I'll tell you what is truly exciting. If you want to live an exciting life, Walk with God and serve Him every day. That's an exciting... God has a way when we commit our lives to knowing Him and walking with Him and serving Him that He gives us excitement in our lives. I experienced this in the last few days. On Thursday and Friday, I worked hard to try to get the sermon ready for today. I was planning on preaching a sermon about Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I had called the sermon, Mary, the brightest light in the genealogy of Jesus. Sermon's ready to go when I went to bed on Friday night. Yesterday, about noon, though, I jumped up on my treadmill and I said, I'm gonna get a little about 30 minute exercise in here and so as I was walking on my treadmill I had this thought run through my mind if you weren't preaching about Mary on Sunday for the candlelight service what would be another topic that you might could preach on so I'm just going along thinking okay if I didn't already have a sermon what sermon would I what would I talk about on Sunday morning before we light those candles and a phrase from the bible came to my mind and the phrase is treasures of darkness that phrase just kept coming into my mind treasures of darkness now I think the reason that that phrase has always fascinated me is most of us don't think about treasures and darkness at the same time. When we're going through a dark time in our life, we don't think about finding a treasure during that dark time. We think, man, This is difficult and painful, and and I'm trying to endure and, and make it through. But the fact is, God has some treasures that we discover in the dark seasons of our life that we never would find any other time. Have you ever heard somebody say they go out on a pretty night, look up at the sky, and they say, man, the stars are out tonight. Well, the fact is, the stars were out all day. It's just that you couldn't see them until it got really dark. And so sometimes we discover things and we see things in the darkness that we never could see in the light. So I'm just walking along thinking about that. Got off the treadmill, got cleaned up, getting ready to come to church yesterday afternoon for a two o'clock funeral for one of the sweetest ladies I've ever known. She went by Mimi, and Mimi was 97 years old. She was a faithful attender of our church for many years, and some of her family is even in this service today, but Mimi loved the Lord, and she was a blessing to my life, and even though she was 97, she had managed to keep her sense of humor. One of her caretakers, or her main caretaker, was at her house a few weeks ago, and just to kind of give you a little insight on Mimi, Mimi got up one morning and she went in and she brushed her teeth and she was getting herself ready and, and she looked in the mirror and she said to her caretaker, "I feel like I'm a hundred years old." And the caretaker said, "Well, to be honest with you, Mimi, you're knocking on the door. You're 97. You're getting close." But she had kept her sense of humor all the way through life. So anyway, the church called about 1:30. And they said, "Hey, we got some bad news. The electrical storm that's come through town today. They said all the electricity is out at the church. No lights." No microphone, nothing. And so the family's all in the chapel. There's some light coming through the stained glass windows, but it is really dark. And so when, the, when they told me that, the first thing that came through my mind is, that's a confirmation that I'm supposed to talk about treasures of darkness. And so I didn't know what to do. I put my flashlight in my pocket and drove to church, to get ready for the service. Well, it got about halfway through the service. The lights came on, everybody clapped, and it was really good. But I just couldn't, all yesterday I thought, treasures of darkness, treasures of darkness. And I got home and got my Bible and I found that verse where it says, so if you have yours today, open it to Isaiah chapter 45. We're gonna just look at one main verse today. But in this verse, we read that phrase, treasures of darkness. No matter what translation you have today, unless you have the NIV, the NIV is gonna call it hidden treasures, but all the other translations that I looked at somehow have this word darkness in there. Now, in Isaiah 45, God is talking to a man named Cyrus. Cyrus was the king of Persia, and God was giving him some some instructions of what he wanted him to do. And in chapter 45, let me let you find it, and verse number three, we read one of the most interesting phrases in all of the Bible these are the words of God. He says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord who call you by your name am the God of Jacob. And so God here is saying to Cyrus, what's going to happen in your life is going to be very interesting and it's going to be very unusual, and it's going to be what you might would call a dark season in your life. But in that darkness, you're going to discover some treasures that you never would have discovered any other way. Now, what I know today is this. In this service, as well as those watching and worshiping with us at home today, there are people who are going through a dark season in your life, maybe medically speaking or financially or in a relationship or in your your, in your health or in your work, you're in a dark place in your life. And what God says to you is this, I will give you treasures in that darkness that you never would have found any other way. Now I want to just mention today, before we light the candles, I want to mention two treasures that God would have us to discover, that God would have you to discover if you're in a place of darkness in your life right now. The first treasure is this. In the darkness, we learn that it is better to walk in faith than it is to walk in fear. Fear can be a, a, a paralyzing thing. It can almost put a vice grip on us and, and almost just really stop us in our tracks. Fear is a, is a powerful thing. This is why in the New Testament we frequently read Jesus when he walked up to a group of people. The first thing Jesus would say is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why did he say that? Because he could tell they were afraid. And he knows that fear is something that we all struggle with. The strongest Christians struggle with fear. I was reading, and sometimes people who are not Christians struggle with fear. I didn't know until last week that Julius Caesar, famous man that he was, Julius Caesar was scared of thunder. And every time it thundered outside, he either got under the bed or went down into the basement. He was scared to death. Peter the Great, who was the leader of Russia for many years, he was scared of bridges He was afraid to to walk across a bridge. Nicole Kidman, the famous actress, she has a fear of butterflies. Now, that's just strange to me that anybody would be. But my niece has that same fear. She's scared of butterflies. So I think she thinks it's like a bat in disguise or something. But she's scared of butterflies. Oprah Winfrey. This was interesting to me. Oprah is scared of chewing gum. Something about that, it just scares her. That's a little bit, little bit strange, a little bit odd. I'll say this, though. I didn't say it in the first service. I'm not scared of chewing gum, but do you know I've never had a piece of chewing gum in my whole life? Not one. Because to me, it's weird to chew something that doesn't go away. And so... Maybe I'm scared of it. So maybe I shouldn't be picking on Oprah. Maybe I have the same fear that she does. Billy Graham, greatest preacher in the history of the world, except for Paul in the Bible himself and Jesus. Billy Graham used to be scared that he was going to get a bad disease and die from that. He lived with that. And I'd heard him preach about that in his sermons. He's taught a little bit of a hypochondriac. He would refer to that sometime. When his daughter Gigi was here a few years ago to speak to our Something Special for Women, I asked her later on that evening, I said, is it true that your dad was scared? of getting a disease or was he just saying that to kind of be fun? She said, no, he was, he meant that. He was always worried that he was going to get some big disease. And she said, John, back then before the internet and computers and Google, you could Google all this. She said, he used to have a big book from the Mayo Clinic that was called Terrible Diseases That You Don't Want to Get. And she said when he would get a pain or something, he would get his book and he would look it up and he would say to my mom, Ruth, his wife, I'm pretty sure that I have this disease, and I'm just not going to make it, and it's scaring me to death. And Ru- Now, this is Billy Graham, like the Protestant pope, right? And, and Ruth Graham would say to Billy Graham, toughen up and die like a Christian. That's what she said to him. And he would say back to her, listen, when I die, I've already told him to put on my tombstone. I told you I was sick because he was convinced. That, but she said he would walk around the house with this book, looking up all these ailments that he thought he had. And so fear is something that all of us struggle with. But in the dark seasons of life, when nothing makes sense and it feels like life is coming unraveled, we learn that we have to trust God. You know, what I've learned in life is that faith is a lot like film it's developed best in the dark. Let me ask you, when have you grown the most in your life? When you were on top of the mountains with no problems or when you were down in the valley fighting the battle of your life? I'll tell you, it's down in the valley that we learn to trust God with things that we don't understand and we can't be afraid. So that's the first thing. I think it's important that God wants us to walk in faith and he doesn't want us to be afraid. God's not giving us a spirit of fear. And so just remember, when that spirit comes on you, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It just means you're human. Billy Graham had it. We all get that sometimes. But it's how we deal with it and what we have to do with fear, anxiety, stress, being overwhelmed. We have to just give that to God and say, God, with what I'm facing right now, it seems like more than I can handle. But Lord, I put that in your hands. I trust you with it. And I believe that you're going to make a way for me where there seems to be no way. And so we walk in faith and not in fear. But another thing that I think is important, another, lesson, another treasure really that we discover in the darkness is that God would have us to walk in love and not in anger. Now, you don't need me to tell you that we live in an angry, angry world. I've never, in my lifetime, I have never seen so many people so angry with other people. It's just this morning, I was home and i was eating my oatmeal for breakfast, which was bad enough, but I turned the TV on to try to see what I could find, and it was one of the morning news shows on, and just the anger that was being expressed on the, as they were talking about these different political issues, and I said, I can't, can't digest my oatmeal watching this, and I just clicked it off, And, and he said, but there's so much anger in the world. Friend, let me say this to you. Anger is an emotion we all feel. Sometimes I get angry. And when I do, it's a, an alarm goes off in my mind. I am probably more convicted, and this is something that is a bigger deal to me than just about anything. Because in the angry world that we're living in, I don't want to be an angry person myself. Sometimes, this sounds crazy, sometimes I get angry listening to people who are angry. In other words, like their anger makes me angry. And I have to watch that and say, God, I wanna want walk in love. Remember what Jesus said in the New Testament to his disciples. He said, this is how they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so when you have those feelings of anger that go off in your mind, just let that be an alarm to remind you something's not right. You need to talk to God about that. And you need to ask God, to replace, you know, the scripture says that we should put away anger. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. In another place, it says, be angry and do not sin. What does that mean? It means sometimes you are going to have an angry feeling, but don't act on that. Don't speak on that. Don't sin with that. Be angry. It's okay, but don't sin. We have to deal with our anger. And much, again, you don't need me to tell you this. You live in the same world I live in, and I live in the same world you live in. Much of what is driving this anger in our day and time is what is happening in the political world. And I don't pretend to have all the answers to that, but I'll say this. The other day I was reading, I've been reading through 1 Samuel. And the other day I came to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And if you remember that passage, now by by the time you get to 1 Samuel 8, God has led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage He has led them into the promised land, all this beautiful land that God has given him, land flowing with milk and honey. He's met their needs. He's given them manna from heaven, water from a rock. God has protected them. He's defeated their enemies. He's, he's, He's just been a wonderful father to them. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, some of the leaders of the Israelites walked up to Samuel the prophet. And they said, Samuel, we have a request. We want a king so we can be like all the other nations. We see that all these other nations, the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Hivites and all these, they all have their king. And and we don't have a king. We want a king. Make a point a king for us who can be our leader. Well, when they said that to Samuel, it broke his heart because Samuel, as the man of God, knew that God had been their leader. And that's what made the Israelites different from all the other nations. And he sensed now that instead of being true to God and letting him be their king that they wanted to conform so they could be like all the other nations. And he was talking to God about that in prayer and pouring out his heart and saying, God, this is not right there. And and God spoke to Samuel, one of the classic verses in all the Old Testament. And here's what God said to Samuel. He said, Samuel, give them a king. They've not rejected you. They have rejected me. They don't want me as their king anymore. They want an earthly king so they can idolize this king and follow this king and be like all the other nations. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have presidents and and senators and congressmen and governors and mayors and councilmen. We should. The scripture says that the governing authorities have been placed there by God so that there can be order in the land in which we live. But I'm saying even back in 1 Samuel 8, you see a fascination with politics developing among the people of God, leading God to say, Samuel, they've not rejected you. They've rejected me. They don't want me to be their leader. Let me ask you this question. This past week, in your conversations with family, friends, and at work, and even at school, what was talked about more, politics or God? Well, I think most of us, if we reflect on the week, would say, you know, actually, I, was, I, I heard and maybe was even engaged in more conversations about politics than I was about God. Now, on this political deal, the reason I bring it up is because I'm talking about anger. I'm not against politics. I'm, in, I'm fascinated with it. Nobody probably follows the whole political thing more than I do, but I think what has crept in to the church of Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about our church locally, but I'm talking about the church of Christ globally and universally is an idea that says if we can just control the political narrative that somehow the world will be a better place. In much of the preaching I listen to, I get the vibe from some of the people I hear preach that they think America's greatest need is for the political process to you know to be different and certainly we want to get Christian leaders in office. Some of you may God may lead you to run for office. We ought to pray for our leaders. We ought to vote. We ought to do all those things. But I want to make a statement this morning, see how you feel about it. Now the statement I'm going to make, I've thought about it a lot this past week. And I thought, now God is that true? Because when I'm up there preaching, I can't just tell them, i, I got to be speak in truth. i got to know what... And I felt like God gave me this. And I felt like God has impressed on my heart to say the statement that I'm about to say. And before I even make the statement, I want to say, 25 years ago in America, every preacher in the nation would have made this statement and every congregation would have agreed. Now today, I think all the preachers would agree in theory... And I think all the people would say, well, in theory, you're right. But I'm just saying this, the statement that I'm about to make, I don't hear anybody saying it. And since I don't hear anybody saying it, it's left me to wonder, does anybody even still believe it? But I believe it, and I'm going to say it now. America's greatest need is not an election. America's greatest need is a revival. A revival. That's what we need in this land. If the Democrats and Republicans could have fixed it, they would have fixed it by now. They've had a long time. Our elections keep going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We look left, we look right. We look left, we look right. We look left, we look right. What I'm saying is it is time in America for us to look up because that's the only place our help is coming from, from Jesus and we need a revival. And what I'm saying is, whatever your political stance is, don't let this whole process make you negative, angry, bitter, sarcastic, resentful, down on life. Listen, we are the children of the living God, and our citizenship is not in heaven. Paul said, it's not here, rather, it is in heaven. Paul said, Philippians, I hope your citizenship's in heaven. Paul said in Philippians 3.20, my citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. And we should look at what's happening in this world, yes, with our convictions, yes, from a biblical perspective, but also to keep it in the, in the perspective of the grand scheme of things that we are going to a better land, and until we get there, if we'll keep our eyes on Jesus, we'll have faith and we'll have love and we'll be a better witness for Jesus, Jesus Christ. I believe that with all my heart. You know, as we think about elections what can they give us? And they are important. We should all vote and pray. And as I said, some of you may be called of God to run for office. We have elected officials in our church. But listen to me on this. Elections, as important as they are, can, can give us new leaders. And sometimes we need new leaders. And they can give us new laws. And sometimes we need new and better laws. But listen to me, friend. Elections can't give us new hearts. Only God can give us new hearts. I think I'll be talking about we've got to get new leaders so we can have new laws. Well, I'm all for having laws that honor God. But remember this, the people in history who had the greatest laws on the books of all times were the Israelites who lived in Old Testament times. They had, and in our Bibles, in our Old Testament, which was the Hebrew Bible, we have 613 laws that were given by God himself. They weren't passed by the Senate or ratified in some session like that. They were given by God. They had the right laws. Think about this. They even had the right leader in God, and yet their heart wasn't right. And so I'm asking you today, here we are, the Sunday before Christmas, and I'm up here talking about treasures of darkness, knowing that painful, difficult, challenging, dark seasons in life, don't take a break for Christmas. I know today that some of you are in darkness. You're you're battling a fear battle. Others here today are battling an anger battle, and you know you are, and you don't want to be like that. And I'm asking you today, do you know for sure that God has given you a new heart? In Ezekiel chapter 36, God said, I will give you a new heart. I will place my heart within you. Just because we have a new heart, that doesn't mean we never get afraid. It doesn't mean we never get angry, but it does mean this. Here's the difference between a Christian and non-Christian. When I get afraid, when I get anxious, when I get worried, and I have that, or when I get angry, all kind of bells and whistles start going off in my mind, and that's the Holy Spirit saying to me, John, this isn't right. This is Trust God. Walk in love. Love people unconditionally, and so I'm asking you today, Has God given you a new heart?